Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast, hosted by Angel Deer. In this podcast, we explore the mysteries of spirituality and consciousness. In each episode, we dive deep into the realms of human experiences, our rapidly changing world, and the unseen realms, tapping into the universal wisdom that connects us all. Whether you're a seasoned spiritual seeker, starting to awaken to the possibilities of a more expansive reality, or want support on your journey, this podcast is for you. Join me as we explore topics such as shamanism, spiritual transformation, holistic healing, the medicine path, energy healing, plant medicine, ancient wisdom, and more. Our guests are respected elders and experts in their fields, and we'll learn from their insights and experiences as we journey together on the path of spiritual growth. If you can, please consider supporting this podcast by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Thank you for joining me today uh, on this new uh, episode and I'm really excited to uh, share with you this conversation with Dr. Bayo Akumolafi. I've met Bayo through his conferences and his writing a couple of years ago and I was immediately hooked. There is a way that Bio talks about the issue we face in the world and how we relate with a more than human world. How do we go through those time of great challenges that we are facing? Um, Bio just bring a whole different uh, view on those. And I think with his poetic tone and his philosophical approach and his deeply grounded wisdom, uh, you're up for a treat. So you can read more about bio uh, details under this podcast or this video, uh, but let me tell you a little bit more about him. Um, bio Akumolafe is a widely celebrated international speaker. He's a post-humanist thinker, a poet, a teacher, an intellectual, an essayist, and the authors of two books, the first book is These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. And his second book is We Will Tell Our Own Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. Bio is also the founder of the Emergence Network, a planet-wide initiative that seeks to convene communities in new ways in response to the critical civilizational challenges we face as a species. Is the host of the post-activist course festival event we will dance with mounting and he's been lecturing in different university he's appointed as the inaugural global senior fellow of the university of california berkeley and he has many other beautiful uh talent under his hood so let's get going i you know Hope you have an amazing time with Bio, and thank you again so much for uh, listening to us today. Uh, please 
if you feel cool um, I remind you that you can go on our patreon uh, page uh, on patreon.com slash the sanctuary ny and give us a very small donation every month but that makes a huge difference in my capacity to uh, bring you incredible speakers and quality recordings so thank you so much for all of you that are already doing that and please if you felt like this podcast or this youtube channel has helped you i would really appreciate your support there uh okay let's start with bio now thank you bio it's really a pleasure to be with you today yes so where are you right now tell me a bit where you are tell me about the place mm -hmm. hmm. i'm at home with my people uh in chennai india chennai the south of india in tamil nadu and um yeah, that's where I call home. Mm. Now, I'm in the warm embrace of my children, my family, which is what I've craved for a long time now. I've been on the road. It feels very nice mm. to to be in their vicinity. Mm. Tell me about a little bit about the land there. Because I have not visited, I'm I'm guessing some people here, and more about your relationship to that land. Mm. Now, often spell for me, lands connect me to voices and connect me to a certain vibration. And what what is that that connection for you? What is that relation? What does it brings for you there? Hmm. There, there there are there are a couple of ways that I can answer that. The the first one is to acknowledge that I don't really think um, I have a relationship with land here. And, and this is what I mean by that, that there is a sense in which the vocation of progress and development has swallowed up the city where I stay in. And Chennai is a very concrete place. It's very concrete. It's, it's, it proliferates real estate projects. There are many everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right now, through the city is this metro project. They're trying to connect um, vast distances with this huge train network on the ground. There's a place that I loved to visit and we're hoping to build our home there called Madhavaram. It has beautiful, it's called the milk colony in Madhavaram and, and it has beautiful trees and foliage and the air is just wonderful there. Mm -hmm. And we, I actually felt this is the place, this is the place we, uh, my son who is autistic could use some clean air. Mm -hmm. um, but, Madhavram snaking through that place now is now this huge excavatory project. So I haven't, I'm, because my, my work is very, I'm, I'm highly itinerant and constantly traveling. Um, something in me is quite reticent and shy about claiming intimacy with the land. 
But then the second way I answer and respond to this question here is what is land? Is it the topos where humans act? Is it just the soil beneath our feet? Or is it, is it just what we plant seed in and grow food from? Could land be relationships? Could land be the vortices of voices, instigations, agencies, hospitalities that involves not just the soil, but the bodies that depend on the soil? Where does land stop or begin and where does it stop? Does it stop at the surface level, at geographical or geological formations? Or is it, given that we're contingent upon land, whatever forms it takes, does it also mean our bodies? Does it also mean the ways that we traverse um, technologies? In that way, then, querying the how we define land and opening it up for some post-humanist intervention, I would say that I'm deeply embedded here. Land is the hospitality of the people of Chennai, the community that has that we're so privileged to be um, part of. The people who knock on our doors at 6 a.m. and ring the bell, and sometimes it gets annoying, but they're standing there with milk. Here's milk for your day. That's land, right? It's not entirely humanist, but the sense of hospitality cannot be fully or exclusively humanist. And I will connect that to land as well. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. I think you've been called a post-humanist animist. I don't know if you coined the term or if people coined it for you or even if you like it. <laughs> I didn't coin the term post-humanist. Uh, but yes, I often throw those words together often, you know, to show people that I'm really smart. <laughs> <laughs> So what does it mean for you? What what does it bring to you? There's a lot of terms there. There's three terms, post, humanist, animist. Do you feel that it's a, it's a call? It's something that is in the collective that is being called? Yeah. Or is it a way to maybe uh, be present with yeah. what is happening in our world today? It's an interruption of presence. Presence has presence and belonging and commonality and subjectivity have long been framed within the meandering ideologies of liberal humanism, white modernity. You know, we think in terms of separate selves. Now, these are the sticky habits of thought that have largely influenced our public order. We think in terms of uh, angel is a self. Angel has will. Angel has choice. Angel has an interiority that allows him to have private thoughts and experiences. Angel is a self, an Aristotelian, dissociated, isolated, separate, inseparable self, mm. right? Um, and the morality of the, the structural morality, the tensility of that uh, formation, I think is experiencing a crisis. It has never been all by itself, but it seems to be the case these days 
that it's very difficult, brother, to think about ourselves that way. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not just pandemics and AI, right? AI is now challenging professors to re-examine how they give assignments to students, right? What does it mean to give an assignment in the era of chat GPT, right? What is consciousness if we are already anxious about, you know, robots taking over our jobs, right? Who has consciousness? So the, the humanist, you know, faces a challenge and that challenge is the centrality of the human. Posthumanism is not new. In many ways, it is, it is new. And in many senses, it is ancient. Mm -hmm. um, it is the, you know, it's, it's not one thing. It's a field of conversations and inquiry and speculations that refuse generally to centralize human beings as complete, as independent, right? Instead of thinking about the world by, by starting with the individual, we start with everything else. What made Angel decide to take coffee today? Well, Angel decided it. That's mm -hmm. one way to think about that. <laughs> Another way to think about that is the stretch the genetics into epigenetics to stretch choice into patterns and algorithms to stretch identity into um, untold fugitivity, to stretch presence into virtuality and diasporic natures, to refuse to start from the individual because it seems like the world, which we once thought of as a stage, is now an actor. Hmm. You know, it's interesting what you say about the coffee or the plant. Um, you took coffee. <laughs> no, because I think I think the the coffee is calling me. It's not me that wants the coffee. I think the coffee mm -hmm. as as a plant. Wants you. I often feel like I take care of a really big land here, and we grow food, and we do community events. And I'm asked often, I write a lot about my relationship to lands and to plants, but my very surface understanding, I don't pretend to have a deep understanding, but what I'm feeling is that uh, the plants are farming me, that the plants are calling me, that they have in a very, very wise way, wiser than I can ever be so far, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. find a way that I will take care of them, that I will you know, make them a nice home that I will entertain this yeah. dream that the plants have about their world. Mm -hmm. And somehow I'm participating in it. And yes, I'm uh, in the same way that I believe they have mastered the bees and the pollinators to come to them and to control their habits because they can really move mm -hmm. around. They've done the same with us. And some plant have been very good at it. I think coffee is one of them. She has mastered the way to spread across the world. Yes, I, like apples. But like apples. Right? <laughs> Michael Pollan will speak about apples as apples. And I wrote a short story inspired by that. And maybe apples are dominant plant species, fruits, right? Because they are 
they, they've learned how to deal with humans. They made their flesh sweet. And so they've traveled into our stories, into our creation myth, into every corner of the world, so to speak. They're successful because they know how to tame humans. Right? Mm, I like that. Different. Yeah. So I want to wave on those ideas of individuality and disconnection and the isolation that we kind of put ourselves into by doing uh, this anthropocentric view of the world and build a world around it. Yes. And the animist way and that sees the world as alive, every beings, every stone are sentient as yes. communities of belonging. Yeah. And we are seeing that you know, more and more at display. And I, for me, I believe it's one of the big reasons of suffering or the constant reproduction of suffering, the feeling of the suffering, this yeah. idea of the separation of the bodies, of the body between the land a bit, what you were sharing about before, but also with everything else that we intertwine with. And even, you know, we are asked often to take a stand, to take a side, to to have an opinion, and I think even that that opinion is very deeply weaved into that sense of separation somehow. Yeah, 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 brother. Yes, 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 indeed. And I've been speaking about solidarity and how solidarity can become a form of biopolitical control, right? So, um, solidarity as a means to continuity is a troubling and ironic um, um, prospect. Uh, but you ask about the individual, you know, and I think we're linking this up with agency and solidarity. I was at a place today uh, with my wife. We're traveling and we're going to update our passports. And we're on in a line. We're in a line. The line was a very, very strange line <laughs> it's an india line i've been in india a lot no, no, so funny. It, it, here's what's funny brother it wasn't an indian line it was an american line ah okay <laughs> it was an american line at the american embassy you know and in just one tiny corner of the room they successfully created a maze of ropes what did they i'm always forgetting the name of those things you know, that you click and in the airport and then you pass through and, you know, whatever the name is, folks, whoever is listening to this, um, they had successfully created a maze in a tiny corner of the room where they successfully managed a large group of people. So imagine just in a corner of your beautiful space there, just one corner, there are a hundred people in different aspects of you know, a different positionality. And they're just standing, you know, like this. And some of the, and the 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 orientation of this space is such that it's so densely packed, but so intricately woven that they successfully managed them there. And I was just thinking about everyone was quiet as you you should be when you're applying for uh, a visa to the United States. <laughs> everyone was very, very quiet. And I just told my wife, who was in front of me, I said, you know, if we took out 
all these lines, if it successful, if I could just make it vanish with a Thanos slap, uh, snap, not a slap, but a snap, if I could make it disappear, we would suddenly notice how awkward this entire arrangement is. We would suddenly be standing and the dividers will not be there and we wouldn't, we wouldn't exactly know how to orient ourselves, right? So I started to speak to her about how, you know, bodies are and behavior is ecological, right? We, we are, we are constantly, we don't act in isolation. We act with the world. We act with furniture. The chair that you and I, the chairs you and I are sitting on, I assume you're sitting on a chair and not doing a powerful kick-ass squat, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, you, I assume you're positioned on a chair. You know, if I find out you've been squatting all this while, I would really feel you know, ashamed of myself for sitting on a chair. But I assume you're sitting on a chair. The chair we're sitting on is positioning our bodies in a particular way, making certain thoughts accessible, making certain ways of speaking accessible, so that you're not angel on a chair. You are angel hyphen chair hyphen coffee I had or did not have this morning hyphen microbial, there you go, microbial entities in your gut, hyphen the weather, hyphen so many things. You're a hyphenation of these things. Um, so when we speak about individuals, we're not speaking of, we're not speaking about um, atoms or isolated things. We are contesting the cartographies of specific kinds of relations. The human individual is not the stable self. You know, the human individual is a dance, is a dance with the planet, a certain way of dancing. Separation is a form of performance. You know, when we speak about, when we think we're separated, we're, we're actually performing a turning away from entanglement. Right. So so the individual is a cartography is what I'm trying to say. The individual is a cartography and is a cartography and a network of other relations. So that the question here for us is, is not um, how do we get rid of the individual? It is how do we break out of this cartography? How do we listen to other directions? How do we lose our way? Now, losing your way becomes emancipatory, mm. right? How do I break out of this embassy line that just positions us in this very, very strange forms? How do we break out of it? And and, and that feels consequential to ask, mm. I think. Feels like we have to get in trouble, or there will be a moment of trouble when we break that up. There will be a moment of... What it, if that was to disappear instantly? All the borders and all those limitation, it will be yes. very yes. disorienting. Moments, yes, right, yes. because we don't have yes. the structured orientations that have been given to yes. us or taught. Indeed, but let me just add another example that's swimming in my head now. Um, because I travel too much, um, I I I have had the privilege of watching how people behave when planes land. Right. It's I don't know, like <laughs> when the plane is 
coasting or or just going down the tarmac and going to the parking area and to the gates. Um, we get the announcement, please stay seated until the plane comes to a complete stop and the seat, seat belt sign is, is off. We keep on getting those warnings. They work in the United States. They work. Um, every time I fly locally in the United States, people are seated. No one gets up. In India, it's a different thing. Sometimes while the plane is still <laughs> while the plane is still going down, some guy is up and he's already checking his he's ready and then please sit down. You know, the force with which sit down is said, you know, uh often leads to success. Or someone else down the line is already getting up, inspired by the heroic gesture of passenger 9E. Uh, which is my way of saying. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to say one is less developed than the other. No, mm. I'm trying to say certain ways of behaving, you know, depend on, you know, or behavior depends on context and technologies and arrangements. They get up in India, I I guess because the concept of a line isn't very strong here. Mm. Right, the concept of a line is stronger. The concept of a crowd is stronger in India. I I see these are preliminary preliminary assessments, but it seems staying on a line is a difficult concept or proposition. Bodies are more oriented to crowds, and time works differently here. It's a different kind of intelligence. In Chennai, the traffic lights are suggestions. They they are not warnings or instructions. They're like <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> like the people are just going, but they never they don't have I've not experienced road rage mm -hmm. in Chennai. But there are laws in the US grounded over decades, you know, hardly ever formulated or reformulated traffic laws, beautiful roads, stable uh, uh traffic lights and regulations, and lots of road rage. Mm -hmm. So so I, I'm trying to say there's a different intelligence here and um that intelligence is a post-humanist quality not a human quality and in that in that context you know and liberalism capitalism can only thrive through all those roles and also the separation of bodies the individuality right if yeah. there's no yeah. you and me or me and that yeah the idea of liberalism and capitalism has a very hard time to function without that transactional possibility, yeah. uh, monetary possibility, operation yeah. possibility, control possibility, yeah. right? Can yeah. we talk a little bit about that liberalism, capitalism, and their entanglement around the separation of bodies and how you see them playing even today in the world? Right. Um, I, I, I speak about you know, the flattening, the clearing of the wilds um, to make room for the mastery of the self, right? The colonial project of white modernity is not, um, many, many would say that that's a different concept from capitalism and that's a different concept from modernity and that's a different concept from the racialized 
uh, category of whiteness. And yet there is a way we can read them together. Extractive capitalism with colonization and coloniality, which are two different concepts as well, but and with modernity and white modernity for that instance. It seems to create this diffractive space where we notice how worlds are flattened and cleared to make room for the idea of a stable self. This is what I think whiteness does. You know, it's the it's the map making, sense making that depends on the sterilization of ecology so that it can give birth again and again to the lionization and the reification of the subject the human subject. In order to do that, we need to delimit the agency of tomatoes and apples. We cannot speak about um, consciousness, except we associate consciousness with big-brained mammals, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we, we kind of, even the way we allot and designate things like artificial intelligence, there's some hubristic element there, like, we are the natural intelligence, you see. We've got this thing down pat. Pixels and computer screens are only epiphenomena. They come from us, so they are artificial. But in what ways is nature artifice? In what ways, uh, in what way is nature not natural? In what way is the artificial natural? In what way is, is it possible to say that the world is keenly intelligent and agential and it consciousness doesn't require a self you know a stable self a human self to be conscious right so capitalism seems to be the productivization of relations right the productivization of relations um a materiality of care that is depended, dependent on the sterilization of the planet, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that the, the relations we have, which often become monetary and transactional and think about the world as dead, mute, and lacking agency until the human comes in to arrange everything together, which obscures the ways that we are arranged by the world that we seek to arrange, right? Like you said, I'm not farming, I'm being farmed, right? That seems to establish capitalist relations um, or at the heart of capitalist relations. And of course that jives with the ways that the citizen, and I often speak about the citizen as more than just the citizen subject. The citizen is the condition for the citizen subject. The citizen is a territory of acting, right? And this territory comprises of citizen subjects and their prosthetic others, right? By prosthetic others, I mean um, white modernity is proliferated by the proposition that white bodies are supreme, that they're typical, right? And Black bodies, brown bodies, all other kinds of bodies are on the way, if ever they if they ever arrive to this typicality. Mm -hmm. They're on the way, right? 
And even if we don't subscribe to that, we are all dependent on and, you know, co-terminus with these practices, these ideological, political, epistemological, cosmological practices. We are all using phones now that have resources mined in Congo. Mm. Extractive capitalism, right? You might protest capitalism and use your phone for days to do so. So it doesn't, it's not dependent on choice or intention. It's that we are all imbricated in webs of suffering. And we all participate in these realities that we're trying to deny or get rid of. Mm. So that in a sense, we are webs, not isolated particles. We are wave-like qualities that, you know, that queers the ways we approach change, agency, and accountability. So it seems that, you know, I've been reflecting a lot on that, this colonial project. Mm. And there are two ideas that are really interesting that on one side is that there is this hyper-individualistic uh, world that we are in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, the capitalistic colonial project is very much about uniformity. You have to fit into, right? And if your body is different, if your brain is different, if your ways are different, mm -hmm. you're excluded or you're mm -hmm. changed or you're framed and formed, you know, at best, or it can be mm -hmm. extremely violent. In fact, what can be done to you if you do not fit into the uniformity mm -hmm. of thinking, of looking, of being, of talking, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there is this fake idea that there is freedom, individuality in liberalism, that we are free and we can be whoever I want, you know, in this world. Mm -hmm. Is that even privileged to even think that way and not realize that this is not happening? <laughs> um, what and, and you know, and, and that's things that I want to weave into. It feels often to me that even decolonization can be as violent. In fact, can be a colonial way to look at colonialism. Like there is those ways that we approach the system that mm -hmm. in fact are so embedded in the way of the system. And I just keep repeating the crisis, mm -hmm. the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, brother. It's, uh, uh, and, and you know, I just want to say this, that, that uh, diversity could become a form of uniformity. It's, we often think of uniformity in terms of resemblance, right? So it's uniform if it appears to us in a particular way. But uniformity could take less, less uniform appearances. It, it, you, you could have diversity and the diversity is producing the same effects as mm. uniformity, mm. right? In fact, probably even greater reinforcements. Um, Of course, this is a way of also bracketing the the ways we construct our um, language around um, 
racial diversity and and other things, right? You 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 could you 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 do some farming, and I'm sure there's you know a lot about monocropping than I do. Um, and then there is the the converse or the the opposite, if you will, which is to plant many crops instead of just the one, right? That's richer, right? It feeds the soil, it nourishes. And yet, if my monocropping leads to the leads to creating products that go into sacks and are shipped out to some factory or something or some shopping mall, and the new diverse eco ecologies I produce are also shipped mm. into bags and shopping malls, then it matters little because of the instrumentalization of that diversity. Mm. It's been taken and the form of it is not just, it's not producing merely different kinds of appearances. It's producing and reproducing certain kinds of um, of realities. And, and, and that's where diversity can be uniform, right? You can have uniform diversity and diverse uniformity, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so uh, yeah, I'm not even sure where I was going with that, but, but I, but I, I heard that and, and I just wanted to pause with that and, and, and tease out something that I was sensing about you know, the ways we speak about diversity, because brother, I think diversity is becoming less scandalous. We've had Obama in the White House in the US. We have Kamala Harris now. It's becoming more tolerable to think about minorities in the White House. Of course, what that does is that it sometimes obscures that there is a red button and there are nuclear codes. And it matters little what pigmentation is the finger that presses the red button that blasts an entire country. So while we celebrate diversity, I think it's also possible to notice that it's limited. Yeah. Yeah, and I was, you know, following on what you're saying about the crops or even the political system, right? Does it really matter if at the end it serves the same agenda? It makes, makes us feel better thinking yes. oh, yeah it's you know like incorporation now there are diversity program you know Equity and inclusion yes dei it's makeup right or oh, we're providing now in companies corporation i was looking you know there's all those mental health program and mm -hmm. things that are designed for women so they can do breastfeeding and have their kids there and all of that but it's all in service of the machine Mm -hmm. same mm -hmm. machine but the machine looks sexy right the machine looks like oh yeah change is happening but change does, it. Happening. does <laughs> it yeah 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 when we look at the crisis that has happened since since uh october 7 another crisis on top of the other crisis right and we see how the world is reacting right to the crisis and now to me, it feels very often that there is a certain level of insanity <laughs> happening in the mm -hmm. world, meaning that mm -hmm. we, we don't take a breath, we don't pause. Like 
uh, before we started here, you know, I say, hey, do you want five minutes? Let's take time, right? So let's take a breath. Let's let's reconnect with our bodies. Let's feel before we think and act. Mm. And I felt we are right now in this moment where we can almost see the unfolding of the monster, but nobody wants to get to know the monster. We just mm. either, you know, feed the monsters or are afraid of the monsters, but there is not yeah. this desire to really have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with it. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's like I'm going to call mom and dad because there's a monster under my bed, so they're going to come and turn the light on, right? But I'm not going to take the time. Maybe let's go under the bed. Let, let's see. Let's look at him in the eyes or her in the mm -hmm. eyes. Mm -hmm. What does she needs? What does she wants? What's her purpose mm -hmm. here, right? Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that crisis we are in and A way through that. I don't know if there is one way or many ways through that, but I feel it's been very polarized, like every single issues in this world today. We are asked to choose and to have a way and that create polarization. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we don't address what is going on underlying it, which is ancient, which has been here for a very long time that started, mm -hmm. you know all those wars we are mm. in, right? It's like a crisis for attention. It's calling us. It's painful. It's hurtful, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet we respond to the pain with more pain or we respond to the crisis by adding an amplification of the ramification of what that means for our humanity, our connection mm. with each other's yeah. And I know many people feel either very sided or polarized, you know, or very disconnected because they feel this is not the way and I don't want to be part of that, right? It's those are very extreme reaction, which, you know, we can understand in a system where the bodies are tired and overreacted and not properly nourished on so many levels. How do we find the ground here? How do we mm. find the other way, the other mm. ways? Right? Mm. Mm. Uh, that's a beautiful question to consider. How do we find a way? And another secondary question would be, is there one way or multiple ways? My question would dance with the complexity of even thinking about ways as predetermined solutions, waiting for discovery. Um, mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I would say that there, there isn't a way or even multiple ways. It's not one and the many. It's the indeterminacy and the continuous um, entrainment of possibilities that we're in and we inhabit. Right, it's uh, it's like the ocean. It's like traversing the ocean. There isn't a way or multiple ways through the ocean. Right, the ocean is constantly this undulating field that resists cartography, and yet is the condition for cartography. Right, is um, there's it's nautical. And yet, a nautical. It's it's uh, 
it it's stormy the tides the storms the the tensions the lightning all of that are not exactly promising for travel and yet it provides room for that so it's 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 not one or the other it's the indeterminacy of ways and what that brings me to with that scaffolding is to notice how um, we often get trapped in in the presumption of a stable ideological current that runs from where we are to where we think we want to be, right? And, and in doing that, in thinking about this linearity, we perform agency as if we had it you know we we are the change agents we just need to update our to-do lists every morning we just need to enter into ourselves more and then we can solve our problems then 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 we start to get exhausted um i feel that we need to be carried away brother that it's not even us finding the way, which which seems to maybe reify the positionality of the and the mastery of the citizen subject. It's not a, it's not even about us wayfinding. It seems to be about us being spirited away, like being carried away in the ways that black bodies were carried away. Right, they didn't choose to undertake those journeys of oppression. They didn't choose to do that, and yet something about being carried away, something about being syncopated, something about the downbeat disturbing the tendency of the neurotypical, or the upbeat disturbing the neurotypical downbeat, something about the breaking in of new tendencies and new questions and new tensions and fields. Um, allows me to decenter the human as the place and site of change, right? The, the human is not all we were cracked up to be, and yet we're dependent on cracks for how novelty happens, right? Um, yeah, I'll stop there for now. Yeah. Thank you for that. I could I could feel it in my bones as you were describing it. But how do we answer the, the the call for justice, for hope? You know, how do we bring that? And you know, in in the animist tradition, I work with study for so long. There's this idea to really surrender and and into the not knowing into what we call the great mystery into something that is so much bigger than ourselves, you know and at the same time there is a from this place of non-duality that contains duality that is beyond mm -hmm. there's also the the rituals and the ceremonies and the actions what i would say justice in some ways the the try to have some organization some sense of directions some sanity in the insanity some kind of light in that storm right like the mm -hmm. crossing the ocean you were mentioning you kind of need your 
your North Star or your compass. You need a good instrument. However big is the storm, right? And, and what is that today in that context, even of that conflict? What do we use as compass here? So we return home. So we return to belonging. So we return with land, with each other's, with the greater collective beyond the humans. Because it's not just human suffering here. It's so beyond that. Mm -hmm. This might come as a shock then. Um, when I say belonging is in crisis, um, I mean to say that belonging is not an ideal that is outside of material performances, the co-enactments and cohabitations and co-inquiry of viruses and humans and ancestries and bacteria and geographies and tomatoes. I don't know why I keep on speaking about tomatoes, but 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 um, yeah, there there's no outside here. Uh, so I, I I often think about justice as very material. It's hmm. made of very substantial, stretchy, sub, uh, you know relations it's not beyond it's not archimedean it's not transcendent it's very very it's very very embedded in different material conditions the conditions of the public order and because it's embedded because it's down to earth it is troubled and because it's troubled it can reproduce specific kinds of worlds and natures and creativities right uh i had a debate it wasn't intended as a debate i was like i was in italy and i was at the university of uh Turin. and i had a conversation with a class about solidarity what does solidarity mean in a time of palestinian suffering and the epigenetics of israeli trauma in its quest for home within the global nation state order, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean when a people have um, eaten the Holocaust as a bitter meal and haven't learned yet to spit it out or don't know how? And it lingers, the taste of it. And the taste of it enacts the quest for new technologies so that the taste never happens. So we we toil and we turn over the soil so that we can grow sweet things. But to grow sweet things, we need to break the backs of others. So the cycle of violence, violence as a ricochet, mm. not as merely the actions of individuals, it becomes this, this organic territory, ricocheting across the room. So what does it mean to address not, to, to, to refrain from designating the perpetrator and the victim so confidently that we're sure where lines dwell? What does it mean to do that? Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with, I, I was having this conversation with him and 
the notion of solidarity came up. And I was saying solidarity is still and can still be a form of biopolitical control, right? That individuals can still be sustained by how we gain solidarity. And a professor there was so taken by that, and he raised his voice immediately and he said, it was actually my host, and he said, no, solidarity is the collective, you know, it, you, it's the collective. So we we shouldn't really um, okay. think about solidarity as individuals, right? And I said to him in response that I don't think the individual is a separate quality from collective. Collectivity can still be a performance of individuality, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Just because there are many doesn't mean it's leading to different effects, mm -hmm. right? Just like I said about diversity being a form of uniformity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, yes, I'm not sure where I was going with this, but but the but the idea of uh, uh, solidarity uh, that I'm trying to invite today is what I call sensuous solidarity, uh, uh, a sideways gesture, a moving away from the frontal assault of modern subjectivity and the neurotypicality of solutions, and then seeking, you know, the whiff of a scent of a new direction. Yeah, something like that. Mm. So I want to, you know, to me, it often feel like one of my teacher, you know, was to say um, to me a few months ago, when we were talking about the subject, he said, well, we are in a very big ceremony right now. You know, ceremony has this arch where there is the entering of ceremony and there is the kind of dissociation. The, the self is not really present and there is the collective. And then there is the kind of the peak of the experience, the remembering of the what we call the original instructions that the trees still carry, the bees still carry. And we're trying to, to remember those instructions. And then there is purging. There is bleeding, there is screaming, there is tears, and then there is a deeper connection that happened in this moment of grief, a deeper connection in this part of the ceremony. And it feels to me very much like we are in this global ceremony, but we never get to that place of um, collective grieving, that place of really holding. We, we know the troubles. We know the things that are heavy in our hearts, but there is really not a space for those waters to really flow. There is always control of those waters on so many levels. And in, uh, in the cosmology, in that cosmology, they say those waters can really find their way. If you control the waters, you're always going to have troubled waters, confused waters, they're never going to get clear. They never find their freedom. They never find their way. And we've controlled the waters in so many ways. We put them in pipe and we put dams on rivers and, and it's kind of a reflection of our own inner waters and what we're doing with them. I'm saying that because I feel sometimes the only thing I want is in fact, I don't want to just I don't want to have an, an argument or a different opinion. I just want to cry together. I just want to hug and cry in our difference of opinion, maybe. 
And maybe we stand for this and we stand for that. But I know we want to cry together because I know we both feeling grief. And I feel that would be the connecting link. <laughs> so I just wanted to yeah, kind of see what that stir for you, this idea, you know, I, as I watch it and as I feel it, I was like, oh, we never really cried for what happened on so many lands, mm -hmm. including mm -hmm. the United States. Mm -hmm. This country has been at war since its creation. And there is never a moment of grieving because there's this idea of constant progress and developments. And we literally have no time for that. There is no value on recognizing that. And then the bitter pill, the bitter medicine is still there and is still creating harm on the brown bodies, on, on all the, those things. Yeah, maybe slavery is gone, but spend some time in the field in California that are growing organic green food and it's all brown bodies, you know, Mexican that are growing that food in this idea of modernity, right? Because we haven't really processed that. And the land still carry the poison and the bodies and the minds. And it's happening today, not just in the Middle East, right? It's happening here in America on reservations. It's, um, you know, I spent a lot of time on reservation. It's more than heartbreaking. But there's no space for that grief. There's not much space for this part of the ceremony. We probably even don't even have rituals or elders that knows how to do that. That should be our presidents, our leaders, right? That would be the one in the tribe, in the community that say, hey, we have a ritual for this. We have a ceremony for this. And this is important. But here we are on this linear time, right? Across. Yeah. And we just can't really finish the cycle. Yeah. What do you yeah. feel about this? What's coming up for you as I share that? And what's your relation to that i would say your understanding of that in this moment of time and also because of who you are where you come from and what you've seen hmm. well brother thank you I've, I've been speaking about this for years the the idea of grief not having a place me being a, a clinical psychologist in training and in my book, These Laws Beyond Our Fences, I mm. explored grief not having a place. Recently, I held this conversation with uh, an uh, a Jewish sister and a Palestinian um, brother uh, about grief as a nomadic uh, marker of loss, that grief is the cartography of loss. And grief is not just uh, crying or shedding tears. Grief is mutiny, mutiny that interrupts the, the stability of the, of the rectilinear self, right? That's what grief is. Grief is, it's not, it's not just shedding tears. It's, it's, it's a form of mutiny. Uh, so I've, I've been, I've been speaking about this for some time and 
I feel the, I feel you're, you know, we need more spaces of a, of a shared grieving together as a form of responsibility, mm. right? You know, um, the future, the future has a strong distaste for grieving, right? Um, the future is this vehicular, um, constant quest for the not here. And that's how progress happens. Um, you know, it's the turning away from eldering to the promissory note and prophecy of, you know, the vaunted youthfulness that will eventually save the world. Um, well, grieving is a form of time travel, right? It's a way of it's a way of some aspect of the world telling itself that I'm not done yet. This body is not done yet. Don't just rush to the next thing. There's something here that you might want to pay attention to. Hmm. There's something here that you want to be that's carrying you away. And you want to, you know, it seems like the intelligence to mark out that thing that errant thing that is heading in a different direction when the plane is rushing down the tarmac it's it it, it seems we we have no space for it for for that kind of intelligence but that intelligence that knows how to mark it and has space for that kind of movement accesses and creates the world differently it creates the world differently it's not better than modernity. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very hesitant to say indigeneity mm -hmm. is better than modernity. Where do I stand to be able to say such things? You cannot stand outside the world, you know, um, to move it. We have to stand with the world. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to make those measurements. Modernity is a form of moral creativity. It will give us toilets and Elon Musk and Twitter and um, rocket ships, which will give us um, computer screens and Apple Vision Pro. <laughs> you know, it gives us lots of stuff, not exclusively by itself, since modernity is also a reading and a speculative one at that. Um, and other forms of social arrangements, social material arrangements, create the world differently and also not without trouble. It's not like it mm -hmm. is the reason why I I I'm um I understand and I and I have great compassion alongside those moral arrangements that seek to return to the way things were. But my intellectual commitments and finite energies are given to the idea that even originality is a is a destination for something else right there, there isn't a stable source the world is too experimental and open-ended to have stable images hmm. if we were to return to some idea of the way things were we would be performing something new right mm -hmm. 
So, so original instructions are always new in a sense. <laughs> original instructions are always copies of some kind. Yeah. Yeah, they're alive. They're constantly emerging, right? And they, yes. emerge, they emerge from that moment. It's, it's something alive. We cannot fix it in time or space. You know? Indeed, well, indeed, indeed. So we are coming to, to the end here, yes. brother. And I know it's also late for you. I, I just want to ask you, you know, like a more personal question, I guess all that was also personal in some way, but what, what is your ritual, your ceremony, your ways to, to stay human, to stay sane or to stay insane and human in that insanity, the world we're in, do you have, and maybe, you know, it's just your being with your family and your children, as you were sharing earlier, but what is your go to? that works for you really well for any moments of crisis <laughs> hmm. when i was an undergrad in the university i was a strange kind of nerd i didn't have company i didn't really have friends i would go from the library to the cafeteria to the classroom to the library to the cafeteria to the classroom that some people who observed me faculty and students alike called me um tmc they called me tmc because that stood for total man concept and total man concept was an elective offered by this christian university um and its key proposition was the perfect man is possible right we can make a perfect man there are rules for doing that and principles for doing that and if we follow the right principles we can create a Christian hero who is perfect, righteous, and great like Mandela. So total man concept was uh, the disciplinarity for creating great men and sometimes great women, <laughs> but primarily great men. Great men. <laughs> great men. And so, so they called me TMC. TMC, that's what they, uh, they, they called me that. Uh, because I was odd. I was odd. Um, in retrospect, it was such an impoverished way of moving through the world. But it was my minor gesture, you see. It was my idiosyncratic marking of territory. It was a way of shielding myself from the impulses and imperatives of meeting others where I just wanted to write poetry and experience new thinking beyond passing and getting good grades. Sometimes I'll walk down a field and there, on either side of me, there'll be people making out. Well, not quite, but on the verge of making out. It was a, it was a Christian university. You know, they would, there would be people, couples, boyfriend and girlfriend, just close intimately with each other. And, and you know, something in me longed for that, but also celebrated the fact that I was this alien kid. <laughs> I don't know why I'm sharing all of this, but it goes to what I'm trying to say here, that on some, on some of those nights, I really was attracted to the alien, to the odd. The odd became celebratory, like a ritual of some sort, like I was participating in something that few had access to. I would look at the moon, often bright on those nights when I walked back from the library, and I would 
contemplate, uh, I will contemplate how the Earth was this, this rogue planet. It's not classified as a rogue planet since it's caught in the orbit of the sun, but um, I, I would contemplate the Earth as this fugitive in, in space and that I was actually on this rock that was hurling or being hurled by something through space. It was just something about that, something about leaning into the alien was very comforting for me. So when you ask me about my rituals, brother, I, I immediately come to the alien. There's this famous quote, nothing human is alien to me. I have something of a reverse that everything alien feels welcome to me. I'm constantly wanting to move into the alien, the surprising. Um, so whatever comes from that impulse to write, to think, to play with my son, to listen to him, to hold back my tendency to want to create, to want to gentrify him and to actually engage him, to listen to how he's navigating the world, that feels so important to me and to my politics, which I often brand and autistic politics. So yes, that's my spirituality. Mm, beautiful. Thank you, brother. Thank you for this time today. I know it's late and I know you have a busy day, so I deeply appreciate uh, the time we spent here weaving a little bit. Um, and I know the conversation will reach many hearts. Wishing you a really good night and yeah much much blessing uh enjoy home don't travel too much it's nice to be here <laughs> enjoy this time on the earth yeah thank you thank you so much brother blessings to you you too brother Bye. thank you for listening to the sanctuary podcast we deeply value your support please consider sharing this podcast with others and joining our patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. At the sanctuary, we believe that spirituality is a personal journey that takes many forms, and we honor and respect all paths to awakening and the rise of consciousness. Our mission is to provide a platform for open and honest conversations about spirituality and to inspire and empower our listeners to live their most authentic lives in good relation to each other's, the living and invisible worlds. I look forward to connecting with you again here or at our events, retreats, and online gatherings. You can find all our offerings at thesanctuaryheal.com. Once again, it is thesanctuaryheal.com.